We welcome you to our worship service today. Every Sunday, we worship Jesus because he is greater than everyone and everything. Today, we worship Jesus because he is our great high priest. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we are forgiven and can bring our prayers and our needs before God the Father. What a great Savior and high priest Jesus is. I'm excited to announce that beginning Wednesday, June 3rd at 6.30 p.m., we will be able to worship in groups of 50 at Hope Baptist. You can sign up at our website to attend one of our live worship services on Wednesdays in June. We will then show the video of our Wednesday worship services to groups of 50 in our sanctuary on Sunday mornings. You can attend one of these viewings at 8.30 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. You can also sign up at our website to attend one of these two worship service viewings. There are more details about these worship services on our website and our Facebook page. We are looking forward to seeing many of you in the weeks to come. It has been too long since we have been together. Let's worship Jesus then as the one who is mighty to save as we anticipate worshiping him together in June. Turn your light out. 
we're singing for the glory of the risen King. Jesus, shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you. your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise you only You give light, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for fighting our battles. Though warfare is a daily part of life, and you give us armor to wear, you are the divine warrior that wins the day and our hearts. You are not calling us to be disengaged pacifists, but fully engaged worshipers, beholding the salvation of the Lord. We are never more than little David fighting gargantuan Goliath or Gideon facing a Midianite army. It's not our pebbles, pitchers, and torches, but your presence that fells giants and scatters armies. Whether it's a mere skirmish or an all-out assault, the battle belongs to you. Fear and discouragement are not the order of the day. Faith and peace are. When we fear politics, pandemics, and power abusers, Turn up the volume on the laughter of heaven. Let us see Jesus joyfully, sovereignly installed as our reigning Savior King. When we are under attack by the seducer, accuser, and condemner of the church, once again let us see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What we need you have given us in Jesus Christ. When we get pulled into petty fights with our spouse, kids, or anyone, humble and center us with the gospel and bring us back to faith expressing itself in love. As our core relational commitment, it's not about who wins, but who loves the best. When our own divided heart wages war within, come to us in the storm, Jesus, and make peace. So we pray in your near and glorious name. Amen. Our scripture reading today is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 28. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses had nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. As I've been talking to people from our church and from other churches over the past 10 weeks since we've been unable to meet together as a church, I keep hearing an increasing frustration with our inability to meet together, and I, and I share in that frustration. I have this deep longing inside of me to gather together with God's people and to worship God together with you all. I've heard in many of my conversations as well an increasing desire for civil disobedience for disregarding the mandates that have been put out by our governor and by our state. And the reasons that I've heard for, for those, in those conversations for doing that vary from we just need to get together to the coronavirus is a hoax to we have the constitutional right to meet together and so these mandates are unconstitutional to our calling to follow Jesus absurds the government's rules. In other words, Jesus is greater than the law. And, and I wouldn't disagree with that. In fact, I wouldn't disagree with Jesus is greater than anything. But the struggle, of course, for me and for many falls with this tension between meeting together, which God has clearly called us to do, actually right here in Hebrews chapter 10, or disobeying the government, which God clearly calls us not to do in Romans chapter 13. Now, I bring up this point this morning not because I have this great answer to that tension, but rather because I think the Jewish people in the first century faced a dilemma which would have brought about similar tension, which would have brought about similar confusion, similar passion, and similar disunity. For the last five months, we've been looking together at the biblical book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is a letter that was written in the first century A.D. to Jewish Christians, hence the name Hebrews. And it may be hard for us who are not Jewish to understand the dilemma that they were going through as we are not Jewish and as we are living in the 21st century, how life-changing and, and how profound some of the statements that the author of the book of Hebrews makes in this letter. When those statements are made to a person who had been following the law for their entire life, when it was made to a person who generation after generation of people in their family had adhered to the Mosaic Law for literally over a thousand years, the author came out and said to those people in the first six chapters of Hebrews, in not so many words, he's greater than Moses, Jesus is greater than Joshua, he's greater than the angels, he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than Aaron, he's greater than every priest or high priest who'd ever served in the temple, and those are some pretty radical statements. But nothing was, was quite as shocking to hear for a Jewish person than what he says here in chapter 7, where he comes right out and says, Jesus is greater than the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is the same law that God gave to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and Jesus is greater than that law. And he not only says Jesus is greater than the law, but he also says Jesus is a replacement for that law. We see that in verse 18 where it says the law should be set aside to make way for Jesus. So you can understand the dilemma that a Jewish Christian would have faced as he weighed adhering to this law that they had followed for hundreds of years or to replace that with a new covenant, the saving work of Jesus. It was for the Jewish church a tipping point, a fork in the road, a crucial juncture. Should we admit to Jesus being greater than the law? And more than that, should we say that Jesus replaces the law? For a group of people that for generation upon generation, for 
years upon years upon years had been saying the Mosaic law was an end all, this would have been an extremely difficult choice to make. For context, imagine a proud American patriot asked to go against the Constitution. That'd be a difficult decision, right? Well, yes, but that doesn't even compare with a Jewish Christian going against the Mosaic law because the Constitution actually has been changed many, many times over the years. In fact, there have been 27 amendments or ratifications to the Constitution, the most recent being over 200 years after the original Constitution was written in 1992. And as much as I believe in the Constitution, as much as I believe that we should follow the Constitution, the struggle for a Jewish person to not follow the Mosaic law would have been a monumentally bigger decision. After all, the the law was written not by the founding fathers of the colonies, but by God himself. It would take more than a passing thought for for a Jewish person to throw that all aside for a new thing, for a new covenant it would need some extremely convincing arguments. And I think that's exactly what Hebrews does for us in our passage today. Now, there are certainly fewer people today, especially in central Maine, who are struggling with this dilemma of, should I follow the Old Testament law or should I give that all up to follow Jesus? But the question of Jesus' greatness needs to be raised for us especially in comparison to each and every standard of morality, each and every set of rules, each and every religious system, and even each and every secular moral argument. And if Jesus is greater than all of that, which is what Hebrews argues and which is what the whole of the Bible attests, then we must choose to follow him and him alone and him wholeheartedly. Today, as we look at Hebrews 7 together, I want to talk about two arguments for why Jesus is greater than the law. And my hope is that when we come away from this message and this service today, we can say, yeah, he is greater than the law. He is greater than every religion and every set of rules. And because of that, I need to follow him and not just follow him a little and not just follow him with part of my heart and not just follow him with part of my life, but with it all because he is worthy, because he is greater. On our website, you can go under our sermons tab and you can find our sermon outline for today. I'd encourage you to open that up as as you're following along this morning. I'd also encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 7 uh, because there's just a whole lot of meat in that passage that I can't cover this morning. But I do want to start with you in verse 11. So if you'd look there, it says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So our first of two arguments for, for Jesus being greater than the law is the law was imperfect because the priests were imperfect. You see that word perfect right there in verse 11? It says perfection was not attainable. It was impossible to reach perfection through the law because the priests themselves fell short of perfection. Now, before you start sending me emails saying, wait a minute, is this what you're saying, Pastor Travis? The law was imperfect? Wait a minute, God gave us the law God is perfect. God's not going to give us something that is imperfect. In fact, if you go back to Psalms, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You may want to do a little more research, Pastor Travis, before you give a sermon and put it out there on the internet for hundreds of people to see. Touche. Okay, we want to look at what that word perfect means here in Hebrews 7. We have to understand its meaning because it is saying the law was imperfect. Well, the word perfect here means complete. So the law wasn't imperfect in that it was sinful, or the law wasn't imperfect in that it was immoral. No, it was perfect in the sense that it was incomplete. It fell short of completion. And the main reason that the law fell short is because the priests, those who are carrying out the law, fell short of 
perfection. I want you to imagine for a second that your favorite football team hired a perfect coach. I mean, I don't mean a really good coach. I mean a perfect, flawless, always made the right decision, hired a perfect coaching staff, had a perfect game plan, had perfect plays. There was never anything that your coach ever did that was wrong. You'd feel pretty confident that your team was going to win, right? Well, probably. But all of that game plan and all that perfection in in the the game plan and the choices and, and the coaching staff, that's still all dependent on the players that the coach has. So if your quarterback throws an interception on every play, if every time your running back touched the ball, he fumbled it, if your offensive line looked like more like Swiss cheese than a brick wall, if your defensive backfield was as slow as molasses, it doesn't matter how great your coach is, you're still going to lose. So we might have this perfect coach, but if we give him a bunch of peewee football players instead of professional caliber Hall of Fame athletes, then there will be no victory to celebrate. And the same thing is true with the Old Testament law. It was given by a perfect God, but the law was destined to be imperfect from the moment that it was given because it was carried out by and given to imperfect people. The priests couldn't carry out the law of God perfectly. They couldn't carry out the plan of God perfectly because they themselves fell short of imperfection. And we'll talk in a little while where I feel that that was part of God's plan all along too as we talk about the purpose of the law. But we see that imperfection in three ways in our passage this morning. And the first way is the ministry of the priests was temporary. In verse 23, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So the law, which was followed and carried out for hundreds and hundreds of years, was constantly changing, and it was constantly changing not because God changed, but rather because the priest continually changed, and the priest continually changed because the former priest continued to die. So in our football analogy, it would be like every single play that you have, sending out a new quarterback who had no experience, run out and do the next play, and then the play after that, a new quarterback would run out. You would have no success, and your offense would continually change. And not only was the ministry or the position of priest a temporary thing, even more significant, their sacrifices were temporary as well. And that's the second way that the law's imperfection was seen. The sacrifices of the priests were temporary. We see that verse 27. It says, the high priest would offer sacrifices daily. Now, why did the priest need to offer sacrifices every day? Well, it's because they were temporary sacrifices. These sacrifices only covered over the past sins. Once someone would sin again, new sacrifices need to be made. And we don't need to live in this world very long to see that sin continues to roll in day after day after day after day, and so the priests had to continue to come in offering animal sacrifices one after another after another for the onslaught of sin that continued to happen for the people of God. So in this football analogy, it would be like having a great offense but a terrible defense. So your offense would come on the field and they would score and then they would leave and before they could even get their helmet off, the defense would give up another touchdown. And so the offense would run back on trying to counteract that touchdown only to come off and have the defense give up another score and another score and another score. It never ends. The sacrifices of the priests just didn't last. They were temporary. And even more significant than that in this picture of imperfection was that the sins of the people were not the only sins that needed to be dealt with. The priests needed atonement for their own sins as well. And that's the third way that the law was imperfect. The priests themselves were sinful. Verse 27 says, Those high priests offered sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. 
So we see in the Old Testament that the priests were not chosen based on their skill set. They were not chosen based on their morality. They're certainly not chosen on their level of perfection, but rather just on what family line they came from. They needed to be from the lineage of Levi. They needed to be from the same family line as Aaron and Moses. And you don't have to read very far into the lines of the priest to see imperfection played out. The very first priests that were chosen were Aaron, the brother of Moses, and Aaron's sons. And Aaron's sons died by the hand of God because of their imperfection. So the very first priests failed. And as we continue in the line of priests all the way through the Old Testament, we get to the very last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, and the priests were still imperfect and failing miserably. God said to the priests in that book of Malachi in chapter 1 and verse 6, he scolds them for their impure offerings, saying, O priests who despise my name. So in our football analogy. It's like having a great offense with great plays, but you continually, every play, make penalties. So instead of moving forward with your great offense, you move backward and backward and backward because you continually break the rules. The priests were imperfect, so they couldn't follow God's list of rules themselves, let alone expect the people to do it. And like I said, I think this was all part of God's plan in giving the law as well. Not that people would sin, but that people would understand their inability to follow this perfect set of rules. So the, the incompletion of the law personified through the imperfection of its priests was true because the ministry of the priests was temporary, their sacrifices were temporary, and because the priests themselves were sinful. Now, all of that is in sharp contrast to what Jesus offers through the new covenant. So the ministry of the Mosaic priest was temporary, but Jesus' ministry is permanent. Verse 24 says, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's compared to this guy, Melchizedek, who's no beginning and no end, which we will talk about in a little while. The sacrifices of the Mosaic priests were temporary, but Jesus' sacrifice is enduring. Verse 27 says, He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus did not need to go day after day after day to offer up sacrifices because his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice once and for all on the cross. The Mosaic priests were sinful, but Jesus is sinless. Verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus was perfect. His sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice was permanent. The Mosaic priest could only come after the line of Levi, after the order of Aaron, but Jesus came from the line of Judah after the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood then is based on merit, not on legal requirement. In other words, Jesus is worthy. The Levitical priests were not. The law was imperfect. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is greater than the law. Now I know. You're anxious to hear about our friend Mel, Melchizedek. I call him Mel. We'll get to him at the end of our message today. But let's go back to chapter 7 and verse 18. It says there, For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. So our second argument for Jesus being greater than the law is the law is not only imperfect, the law was weak because the priests were powerless to save. So earlier we defined what imperfect meant concerning the law, saying that it is incomplete. So when we say weak, is that, what kind of a meaning does that word have? It just means without strength. It is powerless. It is wimpy. It can't do 
anything to save people. Now, there, there are many people who have put their faith in the Mosaic law for thousands of years to follow it. They've put all of their faith there. But here's the problem. It doesn't matter how much faith you put into something if the object of your faith has no power. When I was growing up, my, my mom had somewhat of an obsession with buying chairs that needed to be fixed up. We had a number of chairs in various stages of disrepair in different rooms in our house. Some of them had been stripped of their varnish. Some of them had wiggly legs. Some of them had no legs. Uh, many of them had the wicker in the seats that was just barely holding together. I remember several times during my childhood that someone would walk into the room and they would approach one of those chairs and they would sit down in one of them only to fall through the wicker and to fall onto the floor. My guess is that just moments before that person approached the chair and sat down, they had all the faith in the world that that chair would hold them. And so they didn't approach it with caution touching the chair, see if it's okay, uh, slowly lowering themselves down onto the seat. No, with full faith, they sat down with their full weight into the chair, trusting that the chair had power. The chair had strength to hold them up, but the chair failed them, and they fell to the floor. It, it didn't matter the, the, the amount of faith that they had in the chair. All that mattered was the object of their faith. It only mattered how powerful the chair was. Same thing's true with the law. We could place all our faith into a system of rules or all of our faith into a religion or all of our faith into the teachings of the Bible or all of our faith on our own morality, but the size of our faith doesn't matter, not if the object of our faith is weak and the law is weak. We see that weakness in three ways in our passage this morning. First, the priests were weak. I spent a lot of time just a moment ago talking about the inadequacies of the priests, so I don't want to reiterate all of that. But look at verse 28 there. It says, For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. So the priests were mortal, of course. So because they were mortal, they were powerless to save the souls of the people who came to them for atonement. At best, all they could do would, was cover up past sins with sacrifice after sacrifice, to offer animal sacrifices day after day after day, but only temporarily. Now, thinking about my mom's chairs, on more than one occasion, I was given the task of putting the chairs back together, of, of hooking those legs in, of gluing them, of trying to make the chair a whole chair again. And for some reason, the chairs that I put back together always seemed to be the chairs that fell apart again. Now, I could blame the builder of the chairs. I could blame the manufacturer of the wood glue. I could blame the hardware store where we got the nails from. But the problem really was me. My skills as a chair builder or as a chair fixer were subpar. And so the chairs were weak. And that's true with the law as well. Because the law was carried out by weak men, it was powerless to save. Look back at verse 20. It says there, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So this is the second way that the law was weak. The priests were not based on an oath from God. And here's the thing about God's oaths or God's promises. Because God's perfect, because he is always truthful because he is all-powerful. He always keeps his promises. Always. He never breaks his oaths. Never. So an oath from God would be a guarantee. If God said it, if God promised it, it will happen. But the priests of the Mosaic Covenant were never ordained or established by an oath of God. The only thing that mattered as far as their position was concerned is what line they came from, what tribe they were from. As long as they were from the tribe of Levi, they could be a priest. Now, I was never foolish enough to put a guarantee on any of the chairs that I Frankensteined together for my mom. And even if I had, my guarantee was worth about as much as a letter from Publishers Clearinghouse that said I may have already won a million dollars. 
And God never put his guarantee on the Levitical Old Testament priests either concerning salvation because he knew they were powerless to save. But even more important than the priests being weak and even more significant than, than them not being sealed with an oath of God was the fact, even with all of that, that the law itself had no power. And that's the third way that the law was weak. The law itself could make nothing perfect. That's what it says exactly in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The law could not save. Now, if you're a cynic, then you may be having this argument in your own mind right now. Uh, Okay, so God is good, right? Yeah. He's perfect, right? Yes. He, He never makes a mistake, right? Right? And God's desire is for people to come to him and to be forgiven of their sins and and to be saved from the consequences of their sins, right? Right? And then we see here in Hebrews that it says, the law does not save people. And, And God gave the law, right? Well, then why would a perfect God who never makes mistakes, who, who wants people to come to him, who wants people to be saved, why would he give the law if the law could not save? What was the point? Well, this is the answer to that. The law doesn't save. It is powerless to save. But that was never its function The law was never intended to save. The law wasn't God's first draft as he sought to find salvation for people. Let's try this set of rules and see kind of how that goes. And if it works, great. And if not, we'll go back to the drawing board and maybe I'll send my son and he can save people. No, that that wasn't what the law's part was. That wasn't the function of the law ever. The function of the law was not to save. So, So What was its function if not to save? It was to point people to the fact that they needed a Savior. It was to point people to the truth that they couldn't save themselves by following a list of rules or by being good enough or by being moral or, or certainly by being perfect. It was to show people that they can't obtain salvation on their own. They can't obtain salvation through uh, earthly priests. Romans 3.20 says that through the law, and this is the purpose, we become knowledgeable of sin. The law was given to us so that we could look at our own inadequacy and say, I can't do this. I can't perfectly follow this set of rules. I need somebody to help me. And so the law was an arrow that pointed directly at Jesus And even the inadequacies of the priests were something that pointed directly at Jesus. These guys, the priests, they're supposed to be the example for all of us. They can't even follow it. They have to be making sacrifices for themselves. That's what the law does. It points to our need for a new covenant, a covenant with a perfect high priest, a covenant that makes a perfect sacrifice But the weakness of the law is true because the priests were weak. The priests were not based on an oath of God, and the law itself could make nothing perfect. All of that is in sharp contrast to what Jesus offers through the new covenant. The priests were weak, but Jesus is powerful Verse 16 says, He became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The priests were not based on an oath of God, but Jesus was the promised Messiah. Verse 20 says of Jesus in the new covenant, and it was not without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And verse 28 says, And the word of the oath, oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The law could make nothing 
perfect, but Jesus can. Verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law was weak, but Jesus is powerful. Jesus is greater than the law. Last week, Pastor Glenn talked a lot about the the king and the priest, Melchizedek. And if you didn't hear that message, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to it because Pastor Glenn talked a lot about the things that are said in our passage here this morning about Melchizedek. But but Jesus is compared here in chapter 7 to Melchizedek because Melchizedek is, is not only presented here as someone who is greater than Aaron in the role of priest, but someone who is a replacement for Aaron. It's no longer the order of Aaron. It's the order of Melchizedek forever. So we could go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, and we see before the law was ever given, there was this picture of Jesus in the person of Melchizedek. He was in bodily form an evidence that not only a connection with God could be made apart from the law, but a connection with God needed to be apart from the law, only Apart from the law, can we have a true connection with God that salvation can only come through grace, that salvation can only come through a perfect priest, that salvation can only come through a perfect sacrifice? Listen to Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, where we see the weakness of the law and the power of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than any religion. He's greater than any set of rules, any moral standard. He's greater than your good works. All of those things are imperfect and weak, but Jesus is perfect and powerful. Though we may struggle with what we're supposed to do in in times of uncertainty, there should never come a point in our lives where we struggle with the question, is Jesus greater? Jesus is greater And because he is greater, there can't be one aspect of our lives where we fall back into our old ways. Like a a Jewish Christian might be tempted to fall back into the law. That has been fulfilled. That has been replaced. That old way has ended. Jesus is greater. Let's pray together. Well, God, we thank you for the better hope that we have found in Jesus. We praise you that through him we can draw near to you. We pray that we might not take you or your perfection or your power for granted. May we wholeheartedly give our lives to you daily and permanently. We pray these things in the name of our high priest, the one who is greater than the law, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Yes, sir.
despised and rejected, bearing our sins, my Redeemer is He. Hands that heal nations, stretched out on a tree, took the nails for me. join us this morning for our worship service. Uh, we hope that you are able to join us for our Zoom meeting as well at 1030. And we hope that you'd have a great week.